couple of quick things before we dive into the Word of God. Just mention that, uh, and it's getting close, after this sermon, five minutes? What do you think? I'm not a little excited to go on vacation. What do you think? No, I promise you'll get a full sermon, the whole text, we'll do it all, and the Lord's Supper, and then I'll go on vacation. But this is my reminder, two reminders, that you pray for our pastoral assistant, Andrew, as he will be bringing forth the word next week, and also that you show up on time. Now, here's what I mean. Next week's daylight savings time. Now, I have no idea, since I've gotten so spoiled by the iPhones and stuff like that, it'll automatically show me, oh, it's whatever time it is. But however you do it, spring forward, roll back, roll over in bed, get up, try to come on time. I don't know what happens if you miss it. Maybe you'll be there and Andrew will just preach for hours and hours and hours, and, and that would work as well. But they asked me to remind you all about daylight savings time. So there's your reminder. How's that sound? Now, if you would turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 4, uh, the text upon which our teaching is based. We've been studying the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature, and as we read this, a reminder, Proverbs chapter 4 is all about life. You know, through these early chapters of the book of Proverbs, it's been all about the importance of wisdom. The, here's this sage, this counselor, this dad, this father, motivating his children to get wisdom, to find wisdom. Wisdom is defined not just as book smarts, but it's skill in action. It's being able to live a life that is pleasing to God in terms of our relationships. Really, if you think about it holistically, it's about our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the world around us. And in Proverbs chapter 4, it's all about finding life, the springs of life. If you remember what Jesus said, he said, I have come, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And he said he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the light. Everything Jesus did was to give us fullness of life. Let's turn our attention now to Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 27. Hear the word of God. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction, do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it, do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on, for they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. 
Incline your heart to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, and for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Friends, this is the very word of God. A couple hundred years ago, there was a preacher by the name of Thomas Chalmers. He wrote a sermon. You can find it, I think, several different websites online for free. And it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And here's what he wrote in this sermon. He says, even when we see the stupidity of our sins and how empty they are and how they only make us sad, that realization still does not change us. We start changing only when we see Christ, when we see that Christ will make us alive in ways our most darling sins cannot, when we see that in Christ we are not losing anything but our damnation and gaining everything we desire in our own deepest intentions. The gospel shows us Jesus pouring out his lifeblood so that we can live. The gospel says, look at him, come to him, follow him. You will stop dying. You will start living, and it will never end. Proverbs 4 shows us the springs of life for gospel renewal. The question is, is there a strategy for getting there? How do we get there? Each week I've tried to leave you with kind of an application question. Questions like, do you have a teachable spirit? Who is it you're listening to? Are you listening to lady wisdom? Are you listening to lady foolishness? What is wisdom's worth and what is wisdom's value? Today's question is, is there a strategy for gospel renewal, for finding the springs of life? Is there a path? Is there a strategy? And the text is going to show us what that strategy is. I'll share with you a brief story. When I was a teenager, my family and I, we used to vacation in the summer up in Cape Cod. And we stayed in a place called Falmouth Harbor. And every year in Cape Cod, in Massachusetts, they would have a half marathon. It would start at the tip of the Cape in Woods Hole and go all the way down to Falmouth. And I'd see all the people running. And I can remember being 13, 14, 15, saying, someday I'm going to run in that. You know, on Friday I turned 54, and you know what I'm saying from the edge of my couch? Someday I'm going to run in that. At 13, it didn't feel like a bucket list. Now it feels like more like it's a bucket list. But i got to share with you, some of you all inspire me. I read on Facebook and different stuff. You're, reading, you're doing 5Ks and half marathons. Some of us, I won't look in the back way back there, but some of us are even doing triathlons. That's big time. Now, from what I hear, and I only know this from hearsay, I can't say I've personally experienced any of this, because, of course, my triathlon goes to the TV, to the sofa, to the refrigerator. And I've made a triangle out of it. And I've gotten my time down really, really well. I think I'm first in my age group. Vic, you might be right behind me, though. I'm not real sure. But see, here's the thing. To do a triathlon, a 5K, whatever it is, you need perseverance, right? Got to stick with it. You need discipline, a lot of personal discipline. But there's a third thing you need. You need strategy. I don't think it does well. Jay, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if you're doing a full triathlon, 26-mile marathon, biking four bazillion miles, 
swimming the English Channel, whatever it is you do in those things. I don't think you're going to fare well if you start out with the marathon and sprint as fast as you can and beat everybody right out of the gate. I don't know if you're like me, you'd be like, okay, there's the .2 miles, 26 to go. That's not the most effective strategy. And if you listen to how the Bible describes our Christian life, describes it as a journey. Okay, if you're reading the Proverbs, if you're the son, or the sons in this case, hearing the words of the Father, in the original context, here's how you'd be hearing it. You're a part of the people of Israel. You're a part of the covenant people. And your story, your story is the story of the Exodus. And it'd be the story of Exodus where you were delivered and freed from Egypt. You were brought out into the wilderness journey where you were journeying, led by the daily manna, the fire and the cloud. You were on your way to the inheritance of the promised land. And that was the paradigm, the model of salvation. And of course, ours is much like it. Peter calls us in a wilderness journey. We're the same thing. We haven't been delivered from Egypt, but we've gone through our exodus of salvation from sin and death. And then our life is likened to a journey, to a marathon, where we are journeying towards our inheritance of the promised land. And yes, it takes discipline and it takes perseverance, but it also takes the right strategy. And in the Proverbs here, where the father is teaching his son here, and he's teaching his sons, as a matter of fact, the text is divided up in three places, verse 1, verse 10, and verse 20, where all the time it says, hear my son. And that divides up that he gives the strategy for finding the springs of life or for gospel renewal. And the strategy, like any strategy, has to have a beginning, has to have a middle, and has to have a, an end. This strategy, you have to have the right beginning. And in this, it begins with belonging. And we're going to take a look at that. Then you have to be on the right path. The strategy progresses on a path. And the sage, the counselor, is going to lay out two paths. He's going to say one's right and one's wrong. And then finally, as you journey along and you're on the wilderness moving towards the promised land, you have to have the right focus. And so he tells them to fix your focus. So you have to have the right beginning, the right path, and the right, you begin with belonging, you progress on a path, and you fix your focus. Let's take a look at each, at each one. First of all, you begin with belonging. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. And he says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts, so do not forsake my teaching. So far, so good. This is kind of how a lot of the Proverbs have begun. Pretty familiar scene with what we've encountered so far. Because in chapter 1, several places, verses 8, 10, and 15, chapter 2, verse 1, and again in chapters 3, verses 1, 11, and 21, you've got the scene of a father sitting down with his son, and he's giving them this instruction on skill and living as this neophyte is embarking upon his life journey. But here, if you look at this, look at this. He takes a little further this time because look with me what it says next. It says, when I was a son with my father, huh, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. He's expanding it out. What do you have now is this father is hearkening back to when he was He's teaching, he's talking to his teenage sons probably, and he's hearkening back when he was young. And he's sharing with them about his upbringing. He's sharing with them about his childhood. Ray Ortland, who I quote almost every week in this because I think he's the best commentator I'm reading on the book of Proverbs right now. 
he says that this father tells them what he learned when he himself was a boy. He's saying, I remember when I was a kid how my dad got me going into a great life. And we have seen this father-son conversation before, but now we meet the grandfather. We see three generations in the family. Evidently, the grandfather has died because the father does not say, remember what grandpa used to teach you. Instead, the father informs his sons about how his dad made such a positive, lasting impact during his youth. And what Dr. Orland says is what he's doing here is he's inviting us into a tradition of wisdom. And here's the practical thing. Friends, to grow, to be on the path that leads towards life, you have to have the right beginning. And you begin with belonging. And friends, here's what it means to be a Christian. You belong to a faith tradition. Dr. Ortland defines tradition. It's not traditionalism. We're not talking about getting stuck in a rut. We're not talking about refusal to bend, being, I'm traditional. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about a tradition. What Dr. Ortland says is previous generations handing down something of their own. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said this is the basis of our faith when he says, we are fellow citizens and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. In Galatians chapter 3, this is how Paul, what Paul says it means to be a Christian because he says, and if you are Christ's, there's your definition of being a Christian. You're a Christ follower. He says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. That means you're children of Israel. Abraham, in that sense, is your father, and you are heirs according to your promise. Which is why the Proverbs are not disjointed, isolated sayings, and why the scriptures are not simply the stating of facts or propositions. The Proverbs are not legalistic or moralistic. The Proverbs are painting a picture of a life of human flourishing within the covenant of God, the family of God. Do you hear this man saying, when I was a son, your grandfather, my father taught us. And this makes such an important point for us. And here's the point. Here's the practical application. You must belong before you behave. Belonging precedes behaving. As a matter of fact, within the Christian tradition, within the Christian faith, belonging even precedes believing. Let me trace it back, a couple of doctrinal applications for you. How does Paul speak about our election into the body of Christ when he says, for God chose us in him. We belong to God. When we believe, no, because the rest of that verse says, before the foundation of the world. I don't know about you, I didn't believe yet before God said, let there be light. I mean, I just want you to think through that logically with me. God chose us, and it says in love, that verse 5 that comes right after that says, in love he predestined us for adoption. He didn't just sit there and say, oh, you look sharp. Here's predestination. You're the elite. No, that's the furthest thing from the doctrine. It's God is the head of a family, and he chose for you to belong. And belonging precedes believing or behaving. Let me give you another application. You know, sometimes we take that font that's over there, that baptismal font, and we move it out over here. We make Brad move over a little bit when he's singing. 
and we do this thing, we bring children and infants up and we baptize them, right? You've seen that before when we do that? And what do we say when we baptize a child, when we baptize an infant? We say we are bringing you into the family of God, into the church, and we call it as a non-communicant member. And we're saying we belong, you belong. You're part of us. As a matter of fact, we usually take an oath to say that we are going to kind of be covenant aunts and uncles, helping the parents and raising the child. Now, we also say that baptism doesn't save the child, right? So what does that mean? That means they belong before they believe. And do you know what that means and why that's so important? Because that means, see, there's a method of how we teach, how we disciple, how we shepherd, and it means you need to belong. You need to give people that feeling of security, that feeling that they're part of something. You belong and you motivate out of grace, not motivate before grace. From a very practical thing, you know, give you a practical illustration. It always boggles my mind. It just kind of is always something to me that I look at how different things from our culture are always stealing from the truth of God. Remember the TV shows Cheers from way back when? I know I'm getting older, so I'm dating myself. Remember the TV show Cheers? Do you know what made Cheers special? It was a place, you could probably say it with me, where everybody knows your name. Do you want to know the truth of God that they're stealing from that? But I think the church needs to recover because, by the way, God has given it to the church. It belongs to us. That is, you need a place of belonging. You need a place of security. You need a place of safety. And then you teach, you instruct, you confront, you motivate, you shape out of that. If all the time people are going, I'm not really sure I'm, I fit. I'm not really sure I belong. You know what? Listen to how that person, yeah, they confront me and they do that, but I can tell they're not happy with me. No, I didn't live up to their standards. I didn't do that. Or there's this click over there. That's why I think our welcome ministry and our hospitality ministries are so important. You want to know something? When we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, what we're going to be doing, we are sharing in God's family meal. God is opening wide and long and high and deep his table, and he's saying, let me feed you with myself. And he's motivating us, renewing us, strengthening us out of that grace. We need to learn the implications for our discipleship are absolutely crucial. And one other application, because I think this brings us to a point about truth and relationship. We, never, we ought to never place truth and relationship as opposed to each other. They're never butting heads with one another. Yes, they may be distinct, but they're never to be separate. Because I want you to look at something. Here's the father counseling and sitting down his, with his sons, and he's putting his teaching in the context of their relationship. My son, my son, my son. He's talking about his own father. Tender, he says. He says, of course, you don't have relationship without truth. Truth is essential. But scriptural truth is always relational. And you want to know why it's always relational? Because it's God's covenantal word. God is a God of the covenant, and covenant is not a binding contract. Covenant is a, an agreement that bounds, and it's a relational agreement. Let me read this quote on the doctrine of Scripture from a man by the name of Timothy Ward. A great book on the doctrine of Scripture called Words of Life. He says, it is sometimes thought that belief in inerrancy flourishes only when Scripture is regarded as primarily a compilation of statements of fact about God, humanity, and the world. He writes, I've argued at some length in the earlier sections of this book that scripture is far 
more than that. Not least because, now this is very important, no human language ever has the primary function of just stating facts. I'm going to repeat that because our language is based on God's language. And no human language ever has as its sole function, the primary function, simply, only stating facts. He writes scripture, of course, states facts. It has to. It's true. But he says those facts, those assertions are always just an aspect of the more profound function of scripture as the means by which God chooses to act in relation to us, making himself known to us. That means scripture, as God's breathed out word, is relational. In his teaching, in his comforting, in his challenging, in his rebuking, in his warning, in his instructing, every aspect. There is, there is no non-relational part of scripture because the scripture is a covenantal book. That means, friends, there is no non-relational aspect of our life. Everything we do is relational because life is covenantal. And more than that, Ray Ortland again puts it, he says, Christians, do you know the tradition that you're a part of? All the times when this writer, here's Solomon putting these words in his father and he's saying, get wisdom, get insight, listen to these words and stuff. Ray Ortland again reminds us of what we stand to gain from our tradition as Christians. He writes, it has been 2,000 years since Jesus, maybe 60 generations if we figure about 33 years per generation. And he says, about 12 generations into this historical flow, this historical flow, by the way, that we're a part of, that we're rooted into. He says, about 12 generations into this historical flow, along came a man named Augustine. Augustine taught us that God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And God led Augustine to find that rest. About 32 generations into this historical flow, along came a man. His name was Anselm. Anselm taught us that until we come to Christ, we cannot know what a heavy weight and burden sin is. And for Anselm, that weight was lifted away. About 45 generations in, along came a man named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther taught us that God treats, get this, bad people like good people, through the finished work of Christ on the cross, received with mere simple faith. And God led Luther into this grace. And then about 53 generations into it, along came a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards taught us that real Christianity is a miracle as God powerfully awakens dead hearts with new love, new affections for Christ. And God gave that miracle to Edwards. Is wisdom a fad? Is Christianity something new? Absolutely not. Friends, do you recognize the historical tradition that if you sitting here today, that you are rooted into, that we belong to, that we are a part of, and that you are motivated to live for God and his glory out of, because he's saying, this is your family. The strategy for finding the springs of life begins with belonging. And there's no greater place to belong than the church of Jesus Christ. 
If only we'd be that open, that inclusive. I know those are dangerous words and that welcoming. But the church should be taking the lead instead of the world. The world's not called salt and light. The church is called salt and light. We should quit letting the world steal our thunder. The living God gave it to the church. When will we take it back? Which leads me to the next point, and I will be briefer. You begin with belonging and you progress on a path. And this is really simple because look at how the writer goes on. In verses 10 through 19, he sits there and he simply says, there's two ways along this path. You begin with belonging. Those two ways don't get you on the path. He says, now that you belong, you're in the covenant family. Look, there are two ways you can go. Which way are you going to go? The key metaphor in this is the way or the path. Verse 11, he says, I've taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the path of uprightness, and uprightness means righteousness or justice. That means a right order to things. That's not morally rigid. That just means there's a right order to how we relate to God, a right order to how we relate to ourselves and think of ourselves. You don't think too highly of yourself. You also don't think too lowly of yourself. There's a just way to think of yourself. There's a right order of thinking for others. Out of that love of Christ that we're going to look at in just a minute flows other-centered love, a right-ordered love. And then there's a right way to relate to the world. And here's the sage saying to his sons, sons, I've taught you the path of uprightness. Verse 14, he says, so don't enter that path, the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Verse 18 and 19, he contrasts these two paths. He says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until the day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. It's almost reminiscent again in the original context. It probably would have reminded these teenage sons of what they heard Joshua saying. When Joshua was leading the people of Israel, and he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You recognize that is a daily decision you have to make. If you're already in the family and you belong and you've been, those new affections have been given you, again, this is not moralistic, arbitrary rules to control you. The sage is saying this is how life works. It's covenantal. You serve whom you worship. Choose this day whom you will serve. You serve what you love, and you love what you worship and value. Dr. Ortland says sin is a slavery deep inside, an emotional engine we cannot shut down just by choosing to do so. If you serve sin and follow that, you'll become a slave to that. And if you serve God through Jesus Christ, you become a slave to Jesus Christ, which leads to the only freedom leads to human flourishing. Begin with belonging. Progress on the right path. But the only way, and it's almost like it comes back full circle, the only way you're going to do that is to fix your focus. Look with me at verse 23. Verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And there's an obvious principle here, and that is life moves from the inside out, not the outside in. And so he says, keep your heart with all vigilance, because out of your heart flow the springs of life. 
which basically says, what are the springs of life? And I can't help but thinking that Jesus had to have had this verse in Proverbs in his mind when he said at the Feast of Tabernacles before the temple in John chapter 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will flow rivers of living water, will flow springs of life. And John narrates Jesus' words later saying, by this he meant the Spirit, who the believers had not yet received in this form. Here's what he meant, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit was still active, but he was referring to the Spirit of the exalted, glorified Lord, that when Jesus, after he died, rose again, and was ascended, received the Spirit from the Father, and then poured it out upon the church, upon the believers, to be the power of the presence of Jesus, to be the manifestation of springs of life. The presence of Christ is the rivers of living water, and the Holy Spirit lives to enhance, to mediate, to bring you into those rivers of living water through the presence of Christ. And the only way we're going to fix our focus on that is by fixing our focus on the one thing that the New Testament writers said was basically the completion, the purpose, the fulfillment of these springs of life, and that's the love of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way. Listen to the scriptures for a second. He says, owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. He says, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Time out for a second. Dan Allender has written a great book. It's called Bold Love. And in this, he writes, I'm stunned that every word, every story, every law, every commandment, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament of truth can find its completion in one word, love. Obviously, that means we don't understand love very well. Because we hear love and we think warm, gooey. We hear, ooh, feeling. Or we hear, I'm speaking the truth in love. I'm motivated to love you. The definition of love is an action. It is a verb based on a commitment to covenantally do what is best for the other person. Thus, it is a spring of life, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these, this is mind-boggling if you take the word of God seriously, greater than faith, greater than hope, is love. Do you begin to think, are you having a little bit of conviction that maybe you underestimate the power of love when it's greater than faith and hope? Maybe you don't think highly enough of love that it's the source of the springs of life, and maybe you ought to give your life to pursuing love? It's only the greatest of these and the fulfillment of all of these. So what is it? What, again, is the springs of life? That's love. Allender again asks the question, he says, what is the nature of this thing called love that we are required to mirror 
in our relationships with others and even in our relationship with God. He says, the meaning of love is found in the person Jesus Christ and incarnated with definition and meaning by his death and resurrection. He says, love is a sacrifice. There's the verb. Love is a sacrifice for the undeserving that opens the door to restoration of relationship with the Father, with others, and with ourselves. He writes, I will not live with purpose and joy unless I love. That's true. There's no springs of life. He says, I will not be able to love unless I forgive, because forgiveness is central to love. And I will not forgive unless my hatred is continually melted by the searing truth and grace of the gospel. These rivers of living water that flow from our heart that is fixed on Christ, Allender says, the extent to which someone truly loves will be positively correlated to the degree the person is stunned and silenced by the wonder that his huge debt has been canceled. Gratitude for forgiveness is the foundation for other-centered love. Fix your focus on Christ. Keep, guard your hearts. There's a reason that that was the one verse that said, with all vigilance, above all else, make it your first priority. Before anything else, fix your hearts. Keep your hearts focused there, for from it will flow the other-centered love. Gratitude for forgiveness is the foundation for other-centered love which is why the sage is telling his sons the only way to wisdom, the path to gospel renewal, the yes, you have to begin with belonging within this security, progress on the path, choose this day whom you're going to serve, and then where is your focus? If it's just on doing better, wrong focus. But if you fix your focus on keeping your heart and keeping your heart glued, holding fast to the love of Christ, because that's the springs of life. From there will flow rivers of living water. Friends, what is flowing out of your heart, and what are you seeking? Is it the love of Christ demonstrated in the gospel, or is it anything else? Even if it's good things, it is not the springs of life. It is, is it his love that stuns and silences you, and fills your heart. We're going to go to the Lord's table, and my prayer is that you will see in this picture, this demonstration of God's love, his body broken for you, his blood shed for you, a picture of him. And I pray that his forgiveness of you will stun you, will melt your heart, and lead us to other-centered love. Father, we do pray that our focus would be fixed on Christ. I pray, Father, that even now as we come and we come to the Lord's table, we come to your meal. What are you doing? You are opening your table. You are offering us hospitality. You're saying, fellowship with my grace. You're saying, don't look at what you can do for me because you can't do anything for me. Look at what I have done for you. I have given you. I have sacrificed my body. It's been broken. It's been given. I am the bread of life that I didn't just give to you, I broke and then gave to you to make you whole. And your blood is real drink. The new covenant in your blood shed 
so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and made whole. And so, Father, thank you for opening your heart to us. Oh, that we would simply embrace you in this time. Give us faith in Jesus' name. Amen.